You're listening to My Name Is My Name with APS, an anomalous humanities podcast. Today's episode is a lecture by Joshua Ramey, assistant professor of philosophy at Grinnell College, followed by a response to Joshua's paper by Demetrius Vardalakis of the University of Western Sydney. But before we talk about Joshua's paper, I wanted to say thank you to the great response to my conversation with George Yancey. And I wanted to invite people to feel free to use the Tumblr page to leave comments about the individual podcasts and the issues that are raised during our conversations. For those who don't know the podcast website, it's mynameismynamepod.tumblr.com. Though you can also subscribe on iTunes and other podcasting services. If you're enjoying the conversations, please tell your friends and invite them to subscribe as well. And feel free to leave comments and reviews on iTunes or, you know, wherever. So my hope for the podcast is that we can sometimes feature lectures and papers and whatever by scholars who are doing really interesting work. So we've heard before the paper by Agata Bielek-Robson that was delivered in Liverpool this summer. And so this this week I'm bringing you uh, Joshua Ramey's paper. It was delivered in the Department of Comparative Literature at NYU on November 20th. Joshua's work is very interesting because of the ability he has to code shift. So in this paper, for example, he is clearly doing philosophy, uh, which is what his training is in. But he's also engaging with economics and religious studies, uh, particularly anthropology. And he's using all of this to weave together a story about how divination works in contemporary culture. Now, I think this is interesting because oftentimes when we talk about economics, we consider it to be the height of rationality. While Joshua would certainly not consider divination to be purely irrational, it does require that we expand our understanding of what might count as reason. And so in a certain way, it carries forth this critical project, this way of understanding reason itself, a kind of science of reason. If reason is all about taking the shape of the cosmos and measuring it, then what Joshua shows us is that there's a little bit of madness in reality itself, and it's inserted there by contingency. And so reason has to, in some sense, account for contingency, and that's where divination comes into play. So now economics has to account for madness, and it has to be understood as accounting for madness rather than pure rational choice. This opens up all sorts of fruitful ways of getting contemporary Western theory to interact with so-called indigenous philosophies, and to do so in a hopefully not colonial way. So with that, let's turn to Joshua, and you can evaluate that yourself. Thank you, Emma, and um, thank you, Demetrius, for being here. Thanks to all of you. Um, uh, I I, am very uh, uh, very much looking forward to hearing um, how these ideas strike you and um, what kind of questions uh, and 
comments that you that you'll have on this on this framework that I'm I'm working with to try to understand um, very generally speaking um, the persistence of neoliberal ideology um, even in the face of its putative failures. So how is it that a particular mode of discourse continues to have success um, even even in the face of its of its failure. Um, and I don't by any means think that I've, I'm giving sufficient reasons for the persistence of neoliberalism, but I think that what I'm going to say is a necessary part of understanding uh, why neoliberalism continues to be compelling. Um, I'm going to point my finger and it's going to be like magic and the slide is going to get changed. Okay. So my, uh, the hypothesis of the book is that, um, in part, um, neoliberalism, among other things, um, commands us to take up what I describe as a divinatory relationship to markets and market forces. It implicitly and explicitly commands us to treat markets and market forces as processes and practices of, uh, of divination. Um, so first, let me um, give you a general sense of what I mean by divination. I'm, I'll go through a few sort of classic, uh, classic definitions from the ethnographic literature. Um, uh, by divination, we mean the attempt to elicit from some higher power or supernatural being the answers to questions beyond the range of ordinary human understanding. Carmen Blacker, in her entry on Japan from that same volume, says, by the term divination and oracles, I refer to the methods of communication <clears throat> between two worlds or dimensions which are usually divided from each other. We are trying to put questions which we are unable to answer for ourselves to another order of being whose knowledge transcends the limitations of our own. Um, a couple more um, uh, this time from Lowe's entry on Chinese divination. Divination may be regarded as an attempt to ascertain truth on a level other than that of verifiable analysis or quantifiable proof and by means other than those which depend on reason. The process is possible thanks to the personal powers of an initiate to form or contact with external verities by means and towards ends which he may or may not be able to control, such as divination in its true form. Um, uh, jumping ahead to um, very, some very current work, um, I think this is really the state of the art, this book, um, Divination Perspectives for a New Millennium, edited by Patrick Curry. He, he characterizes it this way, divination is a ritual, synchronically speaking, and, and a tradition, diachronically speaking, constituted by and constituting an ongoing dialogue with more than human agents. It is enacted in order to ask them for guidance and or to discern their will in the matter at hand to enable them to respond and to permit intelligible interpretation of the response. An indefeasible part of the ritual following from these requirement, those requirements is an act of aleatory uh, randomization. Um, go ahead and, uh, yeah, <clears throat> skip to the next slide. Now, um, another just very general, I, I, I take, in the literature, people seem to take Curry's definition as 
pretty much the most sophisticated and sort of the definitive one that the scholars seem to be working with today uh, at, at this point. Um, one more general remark. Um, it, it, it's also a commonplace in the literature to notice that um, cultures that, that practice divination, um, and, and almost all cultures do, um, more or less explicitly, uh, <clears throat> tend to have both what are known as practitioner diviners um, who are you know, trained experts in things like, you know, um, you know, uh, osteomancy, which is you know, bone reading, or um, you know, the I Ching, or or Ifa divination in, in Cuba, and so on. But then also, those same cultures also tend overwhelmingly to have a much more informal sense of divination, which is the, a much more constant kind of ongoing way of being in the world, which uh, uh, which is is a matter of the day-to-day -day encounter with with signs that can be natural, they can be cultural, but that are taken to have special, potentially oracular meanings. Um, these meanings can be construed in you know um, uh, a variety of ways, religiously or not. Uh, they they can be contested in public, they can be kept private. Um, so, the, so the scholarship recognizes these two sort of dimensions. And one of the things that, I, that I'm going to argue about neoliberalism is that our political and economic subjectivity is governed by a mode of relating to markets as divinations that involves both a kind of practitioner expertise level and a much more general um, level. So both of these kind of registers. We have various kinds of economic experts or oracles from, from entrepreneurs to fund managers to politicians, and these play the role of the, the practitioner diviners. And then at a much more general level of subjectivity under neoliberalism, we, 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 are, we frame ourselves, as Foucault put it, in terms of a sort of continuous redeployment and, and um, redevelopment of our skills, our capacities, and our affects in response to shifting market conditions, which I'm arguing is homologous with kind of a cultured, much kind of more vague, casual, kind of everyday um, divination. Now, uh, next slide. So Friedrich Hayek, who is, is generally recognized as sort of the, the, the intellectual father, godfather of, of neoliberalism, um, uh, Um, gives us some passages here to work with that make it, to me, extremely clear that there is a very deep structural parallel, kind of homology between um, the way neoliberals think about markets and the way that um, divination tools are traditionally understood. So I'm, we're going to read three passages from Hayek here. The first is from Law, Legislation, and Liberty. Um, he says that it's impossible not only to replace spontaneous orders, by organization, and at the same time to utilize as much of the dispersed knowledge of all its members as possible, but also, it's also impossible, to improve or correct this order by interfering in it by direct commands. Such a combination of spontaneous order and organization, it can never be rational to adopt. Um, next quote. <clears throat> this is from Road to Serfdom. It was men's submission to the impersonal forces of the market that in the past has made possible the growth of civilization. 
It does not matter whether men in the past did submit from beliefs which some now regard as superstitious. The refusal to yield to forces which we neither understand nor can recognize as the conscious decisions of an intelligent being is the product of an incomplete and therefore erroneous rationalism. It is incomplete because it fails to comprehend that coordination of the multifarious individual efforts in the complex society must take account of facts no individual can completely survey. And it fails to see that the only alternative to submission to the impersonal and seemingly irrational forces of the market is submission to an equally uncontrollable and therefore arbitrary power of other men. Um, and one more <clears throat> quote from Hayek. He says, probably it is true enough that the great majority are rarely capable of thinking independently, that on most questions they accept views which they find ready-made, and that they will be equally content if born or coached into one set of beliefs or another. In any society, freedom of thought will probably be of direct significance only for a small minority. <coughs> Structurally, the parallels between Hayek's view of markets and classic understandings of divination and its role could not be more clear. Hayek explicitly presents markets as divination tools, a solicitation of meta-human forces that somehow know better than any deliberative process, and to which we must submit on pain of failing to have the only genuine liberty possible in human society. And in this last quotation, it's also clear that only a select few quote-unquote free thinkers will actually need to understand exactly how and why market forces divine the knowledge, liberty, and indeed the society we truly need and desire. But it is blindingly clear since 2008 that markets are not serving us very well as divination tools. They are wantonly, they are wantonly exclusionary, destructive, and ultimately sacrificial. My claim here is not that anyone consciously believes that markets are good divination tools, or even the true divination tools at all. I do not argue that either hedge fund managers at the top or those with barely enough for a lottery ticket at the bottom either consciously or unconsciously believe in market processes. I'm interested only in the homology between what is done through markets and what has historically and what still globally is done using very different modalities of divination. I'm not making an argument about false consciousness or reification, but about the discursive conditions of possibility that render divination practices and market apologetics isomorphic, regardless of whether particular individuals consciously or unconsciously invest markets with profound personal meaning. How is it, from a discursive point of view, that markets have come to appear as divination tools? That's the question. Well, it has to do, in part, with the title of Ian Hacking's seminal work, The Taming of Chance. My thesis is that neoliberalism is successful as a discourse, partly because of paradoxes within the scientific taming of chance, or what I call the incomplete taming of chance. What I mean by this is the incomplete way in which conceptions of chance as fortune have failed to be fully occluded by modern views of the indeterminate as random, arbitrary, patternless activity. Even though we seem to have tamed chance through statistical sciences of probability, rationalizing its presence in nature and culture, there persists a wilder, darker, 
notion of chance as fate, <clears throat> sorry, a wilder, darker notion of chance as defiant of such taming, a conception bound up with archaic notions of fate and fortune, and also with avant-garde notions of freedom and creativity. Neoliberal discourse, justifying the powers of markets in terms of their ability to accentuate and articulate nature's randomness, simultaneously trade on the persistence of chance as fortune. Through this chicanery, this doublespeak, neoliberalism can present meaningless random forces as if they were caused by fortune and fate, and simultaneously present fortune and fate as if they were the effects of meaningless random forces. What are the conditions of possibility for this rhetorical endgame that preserves the status quo relations of power at any cost and any price? Intellectually, it has something to do with the incomplete taming of chance. But this is Hack Ian Hackman's story of, of the taming of chance uh, at the end of the 19th century. By the end of the 18th century, a seriously deterministic view of the world was invoked, and Laplace's famous um, statement on this uh, for, for hacking crystallizes the moment. Uh, given for one instance an intelligence which could completely which could comprehend all the forces by which nature is animated and the respective situation of the beings who compose it, an intelligence sufficiently vast to submit these data to analysis, it would embrace in the same formula the movements of the greatest bodies of the universe and those of the lightest atom. For it, nothing would be uncertain, and the future as the past would be present <coughs> to its eyes. Um, <coughs> but, as Hackey points out, uh, with the abundance of surveys and gathering of statistical data that took place um, uh, during the 18th century and in the 19th century, um, uh, a very different <coughs> uh, view uh, of chance, which in the 18th century was viewed, was thought of as being superstitious or sort of backwards, folky, to think that chance played any role in the universe. It's now the most scientific thing in the world to think that you have to include reference to randomness at some level uh, in your experiments. And, you know, one of the greatest American philosophers, uh, C.S. Peirce, um, uh, embraced this uh, very deeply into his, his metaphysics. And he said, chance itself pours in at every avenue of sense. It is of all things the most obtrusive. That it is absolute is the most manifest of all intellectual perception. That is, uh, that it is a living being, sorry, I messed up, that it is a being, living and conscious, is what all dullness that belongs to ratiocination self can scarce muster the hardihood to deny. You can't write sentences like that anymore. Um, so, um, Peirce, you know, going all the way there, the chance for him is, is a living being, uh, that part of nature. Um, but Hagging notes, next slide, Hagging notes that at, at the same time, the end of the 19th century, at the same time that we're taming chance, immediately we're getting this kind of avant-garde conception of chance as untamed that, that pops up as well. Mallarmé, you know, being the most famous uh, example of this, right, with Aku de Day, and also um, uh, Nietzsche's uh, Amor Fati, his, his, his constant sort of invoking of chance as this this, this loving and gentle and capricious God. Um, so uh, this is this is a quotation from Hacking. Um, 
I write of the taming of chance, that is, as a way in which apparently chance or irregular events have been brought under the control of natural and social law. The world became not more chancy, but far less so. Chance, which was once the superstition of the vulgar, became the centerpiece of natural and social science, or so genteel and rational people are led to believe. But how can chance ever be tamed? Parallel to the taming of chance of which I speak, there arose a self-conscious conception of pure irregularity, of something wilder than the kinds of chance that had been excluded by the age of reason. It harked back, in part, to something ancient or vestigial. It also looked into the future, to new and often darker visions of the person. Its most passionate spokesman was Nietzsche, its most subtle and many-layered expression was Mallarmé's poem, En coup de day. The last words are une pensée émet un coup de day, words that speak of the poem itself and which, although they do not imagine taming chance, try to transcend it. Um, uh, we all know that Nietzsche would hate that reference to transcendence there, but we'll forgive hacking for that. Um, and meanwhile, uh, let's let Nietzsche in the room with the next slide. Uh, this is one of my favorite passages in gay science, and this is Nietzsche's sort of beautiful um, elegy to chance here. He says, uh, there's a certain high point in life. Once we have reached that, we are for all our freedom once more in the greatest danger of spiritual unfreedom. And no matter how much we have faced up to the beautiful chaos of existence and denied it all providential reason and goodness, we still have to pass our hardest test. For it is only now that the idea of a personal providence confronts us with the most penetrating force. And the best advocate, the evidence of our eyes, speaks for it. Now that we can see how palpably always everything that happens to us turns out for the best, every day and every hour life seems to have no other wish than to prove this proposition again and again. Whatever it is, bad weather or good, the loss of a friend, sickness, slander, the failure of some letter to arrive, the spraining of an ankle, a glance into a shop, a counter-argument, the opening of a book, a dream, a fraud, either immediately or very soon after it proves to be something that must not be missing. It has a profound significance and use precisely for us. Is there any more dangerous seduction that might tempt one to renounce one's faith in the gods of Epicurus who have no care and are unknown, and to believe instead in some petty deity who's full of care and personally knows every little hair on our heads and finds nothing nauseous in the most miserable small service. Well, I think that in spite of all this, we should leave the gods in peace as well as the genie who are ready to serve us and rest content with the supposition that our own practical and theoretical skill in interpreting and arranging events has now reached its high point. Nor should we conceive too high an opinion of this dexterity of our wisdom when at times we are excessively surprised by the wonderful harmony created by the playing of our instrument, a harmony that sounds too good for us to dare to give the credit to ourselves. Indeed, now and then someone plays with us. Good old chance. Now and then chance guides our hand, and the wisest providence could not think up a more beautiful music than that which our foolish hand produces then. It's hard to say anything else after that. Uh, uh, I want <clears throat> to throw in one one more quote here. This is from Deleuze and Difference in Repetition. It's a shorter passage um, where he he's riffing on Nietzsche here, and and but will help bring into focus um, 
the, the, the ambiguity between these two takes on chance that's playing out in neoliberalism. Um, um, Deleuze says, uh, this is a difference in repetition, the throw of the dice is in no way suggested as an abolition of chance, clearly riffing on Mallard May there. Um, uh, the sky chance is a reference to, to Nietzsche. Um, to abolish chance is to fragment it according to the laws of probability over several throws, and that, that's the tamed chance that Hackney was talking about, right? Um, in such a way that the problem is already dismembered into hypotheses of wins and loss, while the imperative is moralized into the principle of choosing the best hypothesis which determines the win. And the sort of social scientific version of that point, right, is, you know, looking for you know, the bell curve and, you know, using, you know, using probabilities in order to, you know, create institutions that can map onto, onto this constrained, constraining of, um, of chance. Uh, uh, by contrast, the throw of the dice affirms chance every time. Each throw of the dice affirms the whole of chance each time. The repetition of throws is not subject to the persistence of the same hypothesis, nor to the identity of a constant rule. Uh, the most difficult thing is to make chance an object of affirmation, but it is, it is the sense of the imperative and the questions that it launches. Chance is arbitrary only insofar as it is not affirmed, or not sufficiently affirmed, insofar as it is distributed within a space, a number, and under rules destined to avert it or tame it. Again. When chance is sufficiently affirmed, the player can no longer lose, since every combination and every throw which produces it by nature is by nature adequate to the place and the mobile command of the aleatory point. Okay. Although Nietzsche does not call it divination, that is, in fact, the archaic and generic name of what he calls the beautiful music made by chance in our hands, and what Deleuze calls affirming the whole of chance. <clears throat> His name for Nietzsche's practical and theoretical skill in interpreting and arranging events. In the face of chance, Nietzsche, usually so concerned to disabuse us of providence, so eager for us to embrace uh, the determinacy of chaos, amor fati, must admit in a certain way that we cannot pass this test, this hardest test. No matter how our spirituality has been refined, no matter how deeply amor fati has imbued us with the will to surrender to inhuman forces, with the love of unforeseeable chance, we cannot pass the test. We cannot stop interpreting. We cannot stop making meaning. We cannot stop practicing divination. Caution, caution, is all Nietzsche says. Do not be overly impressed with the dexterity of your wisdom as you interpret chance, as you make beautiful music from chaos. Do not be surprised. Do not be so surprised or so astonished at your interpretive flights, your fantastic syntheses, lest you forget that we must, in the end, give credit only to ourselves. And yet, if we are humbled by this thought and chastened by it, it is, strangely enough, not a kind of Kantian humility in the face of our own limits. It's an older, spiritual humility in the face of good old chance. Somehow, even if it is still our foolish hand that spreads the cards, gathers the arrows, and rolls the bones, it is still by chance, thanks to chance, that we then produce that we then give birth to fantastic, extravagant, luxurious meaning, excessive, ridiculous, joyous sense and nonsense. We are not alone in the universe of meaning. We are there by chance. Meaning is superabundant, polyphemic. In its subtlety, how different, then, is this Nietzschean wild appreciation of divination from the often maudlin, cloying, desperate way we cleave to our horoscopes, honor our oracles, 
and pay off our intuitives and coddle our medium. Would that we were all more Nietzschean. Even more importantly, how different this relation to divination might be from that techno-scientific dream of mastering randomness, what in The Feminine Symptom, Emanuela Bianchi called that orchestration of chance for predetermined ends, for the ends of ever greater prediction and control. Indeed, as Ian Hacking saw with blinding clarity, since the late 19th century, since for the most part we have not chosen the path of the gay science, we have been on a furious mission to, cha to tame chance. But even the most scientific of philosophical minds, T.S. Peirce, who recommended training routines for experimental reckoning with and taming of all sorts of randomness in science, also recognized that chance was a living being, if not exactly a god. Part of my hypothesis is that what Hacking calls, in his words, the poetic transcendence of chance is not just avant-garde or artistic, but also in a very archaic sense, religious. The creation of Mallarmé's poem, on the base, a poem on the basis of chance, a meditation on chance and through chance, has the structure of a divination practice, an eliciting or a solicitation of the oracular constellation of significance that is, although by chance, nevertheless significant. Each cast of the dice emits a thought. And speaking of you know, the religion of Mallarmé, um, Quentin Mayasu has even recently gone so far as to claim that there's a kind of secret code um, in Akudade, uh, a secret message that Mallarmé's poem intends for us to um, decipher. Has anyone read this? It came out a few years ago. Um, he thinks there's a, there's a secret number that you can you can add add up various parts of the have you seen this book yeah, the, the, of the through the day to arrive at this number that then reactively you know reveals the sense of the whole very 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 hermetic um, at any rate there is of course a much larger argument to be made here and many have made it that the avant-garde in the late 19th early 20th and in some sense continuing up through the late 20th century always understood aesthetic experimentation to in some sense recuperate primitive religion, returning disenchanted post-enlightenment minds to the archaic modalities of animistic and shamanistic belonging to the world, especially to the world as mediated by new relations to chance. I mean, can you think of an avant-garde figure in the 20th century that, for which that's not true? Not very many. Um, but my particular focus here is on divination as a particularly persistent structure, which is an archaic structure that is. And what I'm going to argue now is that neoliberal ideology is in some sense symptomatic of a modernity that equivocates between the two positions on chance those outlines above, a conservative or probabilistic kind of genteel position on chance is capable of being tamed in relation to normal distributions of possibility on the one hand, on the other hand, a wilder, esoteric conception of chance as unforeseeable and of which we are only capable through a simultaneously archaic and modern spiritual and creative development of new capacities and new affordances. What I argue is that neoliberal discourse hides its authoritarian schemes by playing these two tendencies off against one another. This is how it works. Justifications for various chance or unforeseeable events, market failures, catastrophes of all sorts, can be sometimes written off as simply falling outside 
the normal range of probabilities that can be that we can expect such institutions to account for. At other times, such contingencies um, uh, can be phrased as faithful or fortunate, as providing the generative conditions of creativity itself, this is what's known as creative destruction. Under neoliberalism, however, it always, in the last instance, falls to individuals, not to interpretive or deliberative frameworks, not, sorry, not to institutional or deliberative frameworks, but only to individuals, to cope with or adapt to chance by learning to further identify further identify their own capacities with what will have been the winning outcome or the greatest power. Failure can be written off as random, success deemed a matter of fate and fortune, or vice versa, depending on the rhetorical needs of power at a given conjuncture. However, our acceptance of this situation of total rhetorical fraud is not new. It's archaic. It preys upon our familiarity with divination, as what Evan Heimlich calls a public act of reading aloud. Such reading has been, in other social contexts, a site of contestation and revisability. But in the contemporary moment, it is the site of an authoritarian Ponzi scheme that manipulates apparently neutral rhetorics of randomization and probability of tame chances by combining those rhetorics surreptitiously with those of wild, untamed chance, chance that is divinatory, oracular, and laden with meaning and purpose. If certain key institutional settings, markets in particular, are in denial of, in, in, in at least explicit denial of, the, of what I would call ontological or radical <coughs> chance, or if they're fooled by it, which is what Nicholas Nassim Taleb argues in um, The Black Swan and in Anti-Fragile, um, if that's the case, then responsibility with regard to radical contingencies, natural disasters, market failures, epidemics, security emergencies, and so on, these can be simultaneously accepted and deferred, assumed and denied. And this general structure is what I call the sinister politics of divination afoot in neoliberalism. I also think that the so-called taming of chance, far from finally acknowledging <clears throat> that the Enlightenment claim of superstition in regard to those who took chance seriously was correct, actually exacerbates the consequences of the denial of divination within cultural practices and institutional frameworks. Our powers of statistical inference seem to enable us to master contingency without interruption. Outliers, rogues, and abnormals be damned. But in fact, they create the conditions of authoritarian exacerbations of chance as if chance is not really being tamed, but forced under torture to make certain confessions and not others. Rather than overcoming superstitions about luck, fortune, and fate, the institutionalization of chance has prepared a scientific mien for authoritarian schemes of control. Even Hacking saw, clearly, as Foucault, of course, did, that the discovery of what is normal is a category people conform to ex post facto. What neither Hacking nor Foucault saw, however, was the way that the connections, see the connections between the growing acceptance of authority based on a set of methods of relating to chance and archaic authority to interpret chance under the auspices of divination practices. 
time-honored practices of reading chants aloud. We have now arrived, that is, at a situation where market apologists fuse with extreme libertarianism to create institutions, massive corporate powers, the military prison industrial complex, generally speaking, that can either provoke or exacerbate or endlessly profit from unforeseen contingencies, changes, and catastrophes. These institutions don't need to be resilient or anti-fragile in Taleb's terms. They can present their actions as adaptive and responsive in relation to chance, and that logic seems to be divinatory, responsive, interpretative. But what is masked is always the maintenance of the status quo relations of power, of surveillance, control, and wanton destruction. Thus, neoliberalism plays with us in the most sinister of ways, pretending that it is Nietzschean about chance when it is utterly brutally seeking to orchestrate control over all contingency, map all risk, and dominate chance. It does this by exacerbating contingency artificially, using risk and precariousness to destabilize further natural and social ecologies, and then to use our time-honored familiarity with divination to force upon us techno-scientific renditions retroactively of why some further catastrophe was necessary, some further population had to be sacrificed, some further affect colonized, some deeper level of earth laid waste. Thanks. Which was a kind of extract from my uh, book on sovereignty, was on Michael Kohlhaas. And if I remember correctly, the, the title was The Paroxysm of the Aleatory, which is very much by, you know, about chance. You know, you remember the story about Kohlhaas and uh, project. Uh, to be the, the, the premise, the presupposition of the whole project is that ontology or metaphysics, if you want to call it, is political. Here, chance is a concept that is both metaphysical, if you want, hence the divination aspect, and through and through political, the sort of capitalist aspect. And uh, very often, you know, conditioned as we are to um, respect disciplinary boundaries and to uh, write in a way that will get us published in a, in a kind of reputable press, we do forget the way in which metaphysics, you know, dirty term, is indeed through and through political. This is, after all, something that Marx was very uh, deeply aware of, something that Heidegger was deeply aware of, something that Althusser was deeply aware of, and, you know, the whole post-structuralist, in a sense, reading of, of you know, metaphysics is done precisely in the name of the political import of metaphysics. So I find it absolutely fascinating how Joshua takes up this concept of chance to excavate both these metaphysical or ontological, if you prefer, uh, elements alongside its political. And this is uh, the, the discourses, you know, these two discourses working in, in beautiful synchronicity within the text. I really admire, uh, admire that. Uh, so that's the first point. The second point I want to, to make is to um, uh, uh, draw a kind of a few, uh, to make some observations about chance and the way, uh, the way it was framed. Uh, and basically the point I would want to make is that the metaphysics of chance uh, that Joshua, Joshua was developing is 
dig down in metaphysics of the free will. Uh, Joshua doesn't say that, but I, I would like to argue that it is implied within the, uh, in the text, it's threaded uh, within the text. It seems to me that the sort of central antinomy that organizes both metaphysical and the political thinking of chance in uh, Joshua's paper, with this antinomy between a kind of chance, a kind of genteel uh, chance, um, as you say, with reference to, to Deleuze, a kind of chance that can be tamed, you know, and a kind of wild chance, a chance that is um, completely impossible to uh, uh, um, control in any way. Okay, this is the sort of central antinomy. Um, and um, so, you know, if freedom is possible uh, within this con context, uh, is freedom possible because uh, chance dominates our world? Or is freedom conversely possible if there is a complete absence of chance, if chance is, is, is pain? Okay. Now, the, this question, in a sense, is threaded through the text. And it seems to me that this, this problematic, this antinomy, mirrors the third antinomy in the critique of pure reason. Uh, as you recall, the third antinomy in the critique of pure reason says very, very simply, pose the question of freedom. Are we free when we're completely conditioned? When you know we can describe our actions, our choices, you know, be that in a metaphysical level you know, about who we are, what we are, and, and so on and so forth. But be that in the simple level of the choices that we make. I mean, um, I can use examples of you know standing up from the desk and, and things like that. Are we free when we're completely conditioned? Is there freedom when we're completely conditioned? When chance or are we conversely, can we say that we're free only if chance is still possible, only if we can still kind of intervene in that you know, indefinite chain of causes and kind of chain, intervene in that, in that causality. So it seems to me that this problematic of chance, the kind of central distinction between the two um, uh, concepts, uh, the, the two ways of understanding chance that Joshua was, was describing, uh, is very much within the kind of discourse of, of freedom as that sort of echo uh, of the third critique um, uh, kind of um, uh, indicates. Now, it is not completely um, out of some kind of weird kind of choice on my part, uh, out of some kind of weird exercise of my free will, so to speak, uh, to talk about uh, freedom and chance in this context. Uh, after all, um, uh, 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 in the text itself, Joshua is referring to freedom on a number of occasions, and in particular to the sort of neoliberal concept of freedom, whereby liberty, to use uh, Hayek's um, uh, uh, preferred term, as it was freedom, uh, liberty is articulated in opposition to the state. It is, you know, the free market in opposition to, you know, uh, constituted power. Uh, and how the individual participates in the in the market that um, uh, exercise there is the instance of one's liberty and this is also a concept that uh, it actually uh, gives the opportunity uh, gives Foucault the opportunity to have some of the most uh, interesting passages I believe in the birth of biopolitics the discussion of, of freedom in the birth of biopolitics where freedom uh, becomes the uh, uh, kind of distorted in order to be identified 
with the economy and, and the market. So I, I think you know the concept, you know, moving from chance to freedom is not completely far-fetched. Freedom was mentioned many times, and, and uh, it is part uh, of this um, uh, this project. Uh, now, what is the metaphysical, in a sense, kind of way of freedom? Uh, not, not simply freedom, but in particular the free will. You know, uh, it is important here to remember that the free will is not the concept of freedom that we find, for instance, in the ancient Greeks. Uh, the concept of freedom in the ancient Greeks is a different narrative, but the concept of the free will really arises out of a problem, a metaphysical and a political problem, the Christianity encounters in the fourth century. And this is the problem of how to marry the Neoplatonic metaphysics, which is a kind of hierarchical metaphysics, with the idea of providence that Christianity takes from, uh, from Stoicism. And this gives Christianity one very pernicious problem in particular, how to account for the existence of evil. If God in the providential Stoic uh, tradition is omniscient, omnipresent, and omnipotent, then how can we how can we account for the presence of evil in the world or in the world? Several answers have been given to that, several heresies have been given, have been developed because of that, the Manichaean heresy, you know, the good and bad gods and, and so on and so forth. But the Augustinian answer is the answer that you know set the canonical kind of interpretation in Christianity, and is the answer that is also at the, at the genesis, at the point of the genesis of the free will. Uh, uh, Augustine's answer is remarkably simple and brilliant in its simplicity. It simply says, but the, the presence of evil is not a property of God. It's not a property of God. It is uh, what it is a property of the human who is given by God the freedom to exercise the will to choose either good or evil, whether sin or be good. And this, the, the, the narrative that um, um, uh, Augustine uses over and over again in several texts, the, the most detailed description is in the city of God, but many other things, is the narrative of the fall to describe this, this point. You know, why did Adam and, Eve, and, and Eve uh, you know, were expelled from paradise? Because they had the free will to eat from the forbidden fruit. Okay. And it was their sin that expelled them from paradise. Now, I went into this trajectory to uh, indicate the importance of recognizing how the free will is attached to an idea of a kind of separation. You know, you have the paradise of the garden of evil and the free world, the, 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 the fallen world. world. Okay. Now this separation always operates whenever we have a concept of the free will. We might have the concept of the market, you know, which is you know the place where chance might be tamed, some kind of mystical concept of the market that is a kind of echo or shadow, whatever you want to call it, reformulation of paradise. And you know, the market of the here and now that you know suffers a crash, you know, and you lose your savings. You know, I mean, uh, I know many people in Greece who, you know, <laughs> yeah, paradise came to earth, you know, and they did lose their savings. And uh, you know, you have the you know, 
concept of globalization, you know, the you know wonderful world of globalization, and you know the reality of you know sovereign governments that, that control you and so on and so forth. So this is in a sense the problematic within which you know what Joshua calls the religion of contingency, the problematic with all the, the framework within which I was reading the religion of contingency, and I was reading um, between the lines the sort of metaphysics of chance that he was uh, developing. Now, within this problematic that I described, I would like to raise three issues. The first is, you know, I'll, I'll put my kind of analytic philosopher uh, hat. Yes, yes, I was trained as an analytic philosopher. Nobody is perfect. Okay. <laughs> Uh, so my kind of analytic philosophy question would be, um, is free will or chance, you know, I, I always use them kind of interchangeably here, is free will uh, the only entry point to approach and question capitalism, neoliberalism, biopolitics, whatever word you want, want to, to, to choose, or is it simply a privilege point of entry? Can we, can we describe the, that conjunction of metaphysics and politics of capitalism, neoliberalism, whatever, uh, from other entry points as well? Uh, or is it simply a non-privileged entry point? Is it one of many possible entry points, the, the kind of resonomatic kind of idea of any point, uh, you know, any point, whatever point, it doesn't matter, you know, that kind of Deleuzean, uh, kind of idea. So that's that's the first kind of problematic. You know, well, you know, what's uh, what is the status of chance? Okay. But the second is more the kind of genealogies. You know, let's get our historical kind of categories right type question. You know, that's the second problematic that I, I find very intriguing in the paper. It basically, this is the question of if we assume. There, that there is a, a sense of constituted power still operating in, in higher capitalism. Uh, we're talking about globalization, market forces, and so on and so forth, but you know, still there is a government, still there is a police force, still there is a judiciary, regardless of the fact that they have been transformed over the years. Okay, so if we still assume that there is a sense of constituted power, a sense of sovereignty, if you prefer that uh, term, uh, operating in, in high capitalism, does this religion of contingency uh, retain atavistic elements of older articulations of uh, sovereign power, uh, you know, pre-capitalist articulations of sovereign power, what Foucault might call, you know, classical sovereign power, for example. Okay? Uh, does that, you know, religion of contingency relay, retain this kind of uh, atavistic elements uh, that may resurface in particular ways. And if they do resurface in particular ways, how do they uh, influence and how do they um, uh, interact with the metaphysical and political, metaphysical and political uh, conception of chance and free will within high capitalism? And the third question, uh, which is the question uh, the kind of radical democratic question, or the, the radical question, the, the Michael Kohlhaas question, right? To return to the Michael Kohlhaas reference at the beginning, is um, to 
put it in, in one kind of sentence. Is it possible? If chance kind of describes the domain of, of high capitalism, is change possible? To put it in very simplistic terms. Yeah? Uh, do have a chance within chance, <laughs> to put it differently. Um, uh, is, uh, uh, you know, the, the, the Kohlhaas answer would be, well, well the Kohlhaas alternative will be, is it possible to have a revolution? to get our forces back, whatever. Or, you know, is it is resistance possible? That will be the kind of radical democratic position. Can we find sites of resistance, you know? Uh, to put it, uh, you know, let me put it also in a different way, which is the way I, I prefer. Is it possible to you know, be within chance and yet subvert chance? Well, I'll give you a little story here, which comes from uh, Spinoza's retelling uh, of the Adam and Eve story in chapter 4 of the Tractatus Theoretical of Politicus. Uh, this is the, the chapter in Tractatus which he makes the distinction between what he calls divine law, uh, the idea that there is nothing outside the law, is his way of talking about providence. You know? There is no chance. You know? There is no chance that you'll break the divine law. You're in the divine law and you can't get out of it. And what he calls uh, human law, the law that is made up by humans, which can be broken, and that gives us the possibility for resistance, revolution, and so on. Okay. So he takes up at, at some point in, in, in the in chapter four of the Tractatus Politicus, um, uh, Spinoza uses his incredible humor, a point I will return to in a moment. He uses his incredible humor to retell the story of the. And he says, how are we to account for the fact that Adam stupidly went and ate the apple when he knew that he had a divine command, that is a divine law, that if he eats the apple, he's going to be kicked out of paradise. How do you account for that? The Augustinian answer, of course, was the answer that he gave of the free will, was that he had a free will. And Spinoza's answer is, you know, has nothing to do with the free will. Nothing to do with chance in that sense. The metaphysics of chance in that sense. Simple too. It was a misunderstanding. He just misunderstood what God told him. He thought that God gave him a human command, not a divine command. There was just a simple misunderstanding. And this simple misunderstanding, as we know that described it, provides us with the possibility to get outside that antinomy, that, that antinomy of chance, you know, whether we can have either you know, the changing of chance in a kind of providential manner, or, you know, a kind of chance that is wild and untamable, and to find ways in which, you know, that antinomy itself can be transformed and give us the possibility of an alternative politics. Um, um, a politics that we can give it different names. I mean, uh, Spinoza maybe, I will call it, uh, call it uh, democracy, but basically the point I'm, I'm, I'm raising here is, is there anything outside chance or beyond chance or even more simplistically, is it possible to resist chance? You know, and other narratives like humorous narratives like Spinoza's, you know, other kind of uh, uh, narratives that we can utilize in order to talk about chance in a way that does not, in a sense, inscribe chance simply within, um, uh, within high capitalism.
do you want to take a couple of minutes to yeah, respond? Sure. Okay. Hey, thanks, Demetrius. Um, really rich, um, really rich set of questions there for me to think about. Lots of different things to say. I'll, I'll try to keep my remarks really brief, so we can we can have a more general discussion um, with everyone who's here. Um, I think the, 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 the easiest way to do this would be to, to, to work um, to work backwards, start with the last point. Um, but let me, I want to preface my response by saying this, though. It, it, it's true that I spoke a lot more tonight about chant than about divination. But one of the reasons why the word divination is in the title and not the word chance, and why it's a politics of divination and not a politics of chance, um, has, has to do with the fact that I think that um, the, the generic framework of, of divination is um, an extremely rich way to think about precisely the, the kind of um, uh, reinter reinterpretation and even humorous reinterpretation that Spinoza is proposing for the fall. And and part of that has to do with the fact that um, it's the, 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 these practices are they're, they're not only it's not only that divination practices are social, but the, in the first chapter of the book, I, I I make an argument following Vico that in some sense div, divination practices are, are part of what constitute us as social beings. So there's a, there's a very very deep Structural role played played by divination practices in, for that, that I mean for for Vico um, and this is that that there that you you can't sometimes understand even the origins of language um, uh, outside of this this peculiar matrix in which we are and for Vico you know language begins in metaphor not in not in um, Anything like a Lockean sort of, you know, naming of discrete objects, right? So, so um, the the sort of and it's very Nietzschean on this point, right? The, the sort of inherently metaphorical character of, of language is, is this process of trying to construe what these contingencies might mean as they're as they're coming at us, you know. And um, so that that's part of the reason why I want to hang on to thinking chance always as always already structured by a kind of div divinatory practice, a kind of pragmatics that's that you know that, that as you got to earlier, you know, that is my particular way of keeping the metaphysics of chance politicized, right? Is is by is by hanging on kind of insisting axiomatically almost, you know, on on using this particular 
framework um, of, of, of divination as a way um, of, it, but it's, it's partly an, 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 a way of uh, avoiding what I think a trap might be. And I don't think you're suggesting I go this way, but you know, one might think, oh, well, we, you know, we simply need to get um, the right answer about what freedom really is, right, or what liberty really means, or, or even you know, what free will really means, and then we can then we can demolish, you know, neoliberal ideologies and show that they're they're incoherent. And I, I actually don't think it's that simple because I mean, following Nietzsche, I think there are there are only there is no such thing as freedom. <laughs> there are interpretations of freedom. You know, there is no such thing as chance. There are interpretations of chance. And these are structured, you know, um, socio-historically, epistemically, in a kind of Foucauldian way for me. So, what I'm part of what I'm contending is that there is no purely intellectual resistance to neoliberalism. There's there's only an, something like an alternative practice. There's an there's a there's a I mean what one of the I mean. What part of what is so powerful about neoliberalism is that it isn't just a set of ideas, you know, that someone like Hayek had. It's, it's a set of disciplines and practices. I mean, he and he talked. I mean, Foucault, you know, of course, was very clear about this, right? But you, we must make ourselves into neoliberal subjects. We must make ourselves into the kinds of beings, right, that um, relate to the chance um, in, in this way, and. Um, Kind of, I'm kind of jumping in in and out of a lot of different points that you were making here, but um, um, I didn't give you uh, in a, sort of in a nutshell what I mean by this phrase um, "religion of contingency." Okay, but what what I'm taking out with that phrase in the title, okay, is is the sort of the obscenely public way in which the the, um, the deliverances of um, the market are continuously glamorized, right? Whatever those happen to be. It's a, it has a lot to do with um, Giorgio Agamemnon's recent book, um, Kingdom and Glory, um, which is it's about sort of the, the, um, the, the roots of, uh, you know, um, uh, our our providential thinking about economics as being, you know, grounded in sort of um, Trinitarian logics about how um, a, a divine economy relates to uh, an earthly economy. Um, and you, you know, a lot of your questions uh, uh, are, are relevant to that, that problematic, um, right, in terms of providence and and how we're supposed to think free will in, in relation to that. But the, what I mean by the religion of contingency is is this is this sort of obscene public religion that we're sort of conscripted into, whether we want to or not, right? As 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 a kind of public act of, of declaiming and acclaiming and lauding and honoring, right? The sort of the, the perpetual changes and the and the continuous sort of um, results that keep coming up, so whether those are on the basis of catastrophes or natural disasters, or just or just shifts in supply and demand wherever they happen to be. Right, the the it, it, neoliberalism trains us to celebrate those revolts, whatever they might happen to be. Okay, and our lives become these ritual practices enabling us to do that. Right, everything from the 
chemicals that we use to prepare ourselves to do that, and the and the and the ways in which we, um, you know, continuously repackage even our own affect, you know, on, on social media and so on, so that we continuously sort of keep up, you know, with with the machine. That's that's what I mean by the religion of contingency in particular, and it's it, it's that is the um, the uh, the effect of in a certain way what I'm what I call a politics of nation, which is what I was pointing out here, which is that which is that double speak um, uh, of that, that that enables the the play back and forth between um, a sense of the contingent as random or arbitrary or patternless, right, on the one hand, but also somehow fated or fortunate um, uh, on the other. So you have to you you in a certain way you. Um, um, bought into that, which is what then makes us participate so deeply in the religion of contingency. Okay? So that's that's the, the logic anyway of what I'm um, I'm claiming. I I think if there is a meaningful sense of free will that I'm interested in, it, it, it does have something to do with a kind of humorous, spinazistic ability to to reinterpret or, or reimagine Right, what um, we thought happened, right? But what I'm claiming is that is that neoliberalism has managed to capture all the interpretive cards. They 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 they're playing us on, from both sides. It's they 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 basically what I'm saying is that at the moment anyway, they've saturated the, the discursive system. They they can they can play the side both of divine law and human law in in, in spinozistic terms, right? That's 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 another way of understanding the the double speak between you know fortune or or patterns and randomness, right? Is that um, and 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 you asked if there was something archaic or atavistic about this form of sovereignty, and yes, there is. And I think you know in the book I use mainly the pie to think about this, right? But it, it's the, the kind of sovereignty that that I think the pie about this very clearly. You know that I'm interested in is is, is this? I, I think it's precisely the kind of sovereignty that neoliberals. Has. It's this anonymous, um, uh, un unaccountable. It's not classical sovereignty in the you know the early modern sense. It's very archaic, and, and, and that's why that's why I'm trying to frame what neoliberalism is doing from the point of view of the nation. Because and this again goes to my argument about Pico, but you know Pico's this is very much like Nietzsche in this sense. Pico's idea about um, uh, early forms of power are very similar to what you get in the genealogy of morals, right? It's, it's not that there's a domination of an oppressed class um, for the benefit of a few masters or nobles. It's that select numbers of masters or nobles figure out how to relate to themselves by glamorizing their lives in terms of this, this discourse of goodness or nobility. Um, and, and Vico has a very similar story to each of them on this point, right? And they, they're, they're relatively indifferent to um, uh, the same, the split, right? I mean, the, 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 this is the mark of natural morality in Nietzsche, is that, is that, right, this is kind of, they forget, you know, that, that, that the slaves, you know, even exist, right? Um, really fascinating thing in Vico, right, is that, is that Vico points out that, that this is why in in the Roman Empire, right, 
the, the bids of the plebeians for, for fuller inclusion in, in um, uh, the, uh, you know, uh, things like having their marriages legally recognized and, you know, not having their property taken from them and so on, all these things that we recognize as being part of sort of an egalitarian, emerging egalitarianism in Rome, right? The core, I mean, Vico points out that the core of their of their argument and what they were pleading for was to have their lives recognized by the auspices. In other words, they, they wanted their lives made sacred by the divination practices that were used for um, the aristocratic and ruling classes, right? So, I mean, a big part of what I'm trying to get at here is that we have a we have a discourse of economy and of economic equality or inequality or what's fair or unfair in, in material terms that doesn't make any reference to the fact that much of what's at stake in the economy are things like honor and shame and prestige. And this is again, you know, a point that many people have made, you know, already. But when you think about um, um, markets as kind of weaponized divination tools, right? You can you can see why it's so important for it's so important that we accept um, you know almost in a providential way, and this argument goes back to Max Weber in some ways, right? You know, that they that that we are getting the kind of honor or shame that we truly deserve, quite apart from what the material circumstances are of our lives, right? And this is and this is another way in which Anyway, I'll, I'll, I think I'll leave it at that. And maybe we should okay, great. Thanks so much. So we actually, as we always do in Poetics and Theory, have wine and snacks and stuff. So I think this might be a good moment for people to you know, avail themselves of the refreshment. You know, oh, signs are there to be read, right? Um, you know, uh, uh, isn't reading something that is much more sort of endlessly uh, creative and, in a sense, also aleatory as a practice um, than, than, than something like, you know, a series of sort of stochastic techniques that are sort of stand in as a sort of, you know, not particularly interesting, you know, set of metrics that stand in for something that could be much ri richer, which would be a practice of reading. Part, um, is, is that, is that part, I mean, part of I, 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 part of what I'm another way of another way of talking about the, the double speak, right? Is that, and I, and I need to substantiate this in in a, in a better way, but I I think we've arrived at a, a point at which the what you what you're describing there is sort of this kind of brute presentations of you know. Well, frankly, what we would call statistical significance, you know, as sort of the, the result. Yeah, so, like, you know, so the weather, oh, there's a 30 percent chance of precipitation. Right. That, yeah. that I, I think we've come yeah. to, we've come to a point where we have we have accepted those deliverances as if we were actually reading, when when we're not. Right. 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 That that's another way of of of, of, of characterizing the you know the acceptation of. Um, of randomness as if it were meaningful chance, 
it's, it's, it's a parallel. The, the, and it's exact parallel is that. Like, as if, as if it really meant something when we heard the Dow was at 1408.3 you know, today. Right? As, as if we, it's, it's, it's almost as if several things happen simultaneously. It, it's as if we think that number doesn't need to be interpreted because it's a number. Somebody somewhere knows what that number means, and they're in charge. Right, right. And third, I'm not sure what that number means, but I heard that if it's blah, 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 then I can do blah, 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 right? There, there's some, there, is, there is a kind of active reading going on, but it's, this is what I'm, I mean when I'm talking about the, the masking, right? Which is that there's, there's a way in which the, the interpretive possibilities and the interpretive prerogatives and imperatives, right, are being foreclosed, right? And, and, it, and, it, and, it, it has some, and it has something to do not just with sort of the, uh, you know, uh, the unassailability of the, the numeric or the, or the number, right? But, but, but with this, I think, the hypothesis of the book anyway, is, is the way in which it, it, it feels like somebody somewhere is doing divination. It feels like something happened, right, where, you know, oh, the, the weather changed, you know, we, we don't know why, but, but there's, it's almost as if, you know, you can almost do a psychoanalytical move here, you know, there's the big other, you know, has divined, you know, that this is, you know, this means X, Y, and Z for us, right? So, I mean, it, this really good ethnographer of divination, Evan Heimlich, he, he calls divination a practice of reading aloud, a communal practice of reading aloud. It's a really rich way of thinking about it, um, partly because partly because divinatory practices have often involved, you know, just opening a book and letting, letting your eye fall on a word, which was Augustine's conversion, of course, you know, you evoked him earlier, right? And these, these practices um, have been not just a part of sort of indigenous religious traditions, they've been a huge part of Judaism and Christianity and Islam. Well, although they're they're suppressed, right? It, you're not supposed to realize or know that, you know, uh, you know, God has commanded His people to to use lots and or to engage in various mantic practices, right? Because because you know uh, that would it, it seems that it seems that the Almighty is being forced in some sense to deal with chance in order to communicate with His people. Right, but that's um, the, the second chapter of the book is actually about monotheism and about its its attempt to sort of suppress divination. But anyway, yeah, I mean one one whole way through this right is this is this problem of if we're actually reading, when we're reading, how are we reading, what kinds of directives have we already accepted about how we can read? You know, all of those questions are are totally there. You're right. Um, yeah, and, and, and one of the, I mean, one of the clearest problems to me, right, is that, is that historically and globally speaking, the, the results of, of divinations are, are deeply contestable. You know, if you, if you think that the that priest has accepted a bribe, or if you think that, you know, um, you know, the, the, the shaman has, is practicing sorcery or has a bad motivation, you, you, you can have the things done again. You have the you know, this is in, even in, in modern India and, and in lots, lots of places now, like there's very complicated politics, right, around when when an oracle is definitive, when it when it really counts as, as true, right, and like and 
has it been done correctly and has it been messed with in some way? I mean, it's just like endless contestability, right? And this seems a very, this, I mean, if you want to talk about resistance, right, the, the resistance we can get from this line of thinking, right, is it's, part of it is a demand that the results of marketplace interactions be revisable in, in, in terms of redistribution, in terms of like, you know, radically inequitable outcomes of it be, okay, you know, well, apparently that went down through a group of free agents in the market, but we don't like the results. So, you know, we're going to take that back, you know, but, but that's the kind of thing that we can't do once we've accepted this sort of, um, this idea that somehow markets transcribe a kind of randomness that's in nature and that we're just beholden to, and it's not subject to interpretation. See, sorry. Is that okay if I ask? Because I think Manuel's question was really interesting. If you if you think of the you know early hermeneutics, someone like Schleiermacher, who talks about hermeneutics as divination, right? Yeah. Uh, and, and his point, in a sense, is the opposite of yours. He says, you know, very much Manuel's point that, you know, in order to have a community of meaning, we need to accept certain presuppositions. Right. We need to have, you know, we need to accept certain things, you know, to take certain things for granted without interpretation. You know, this is the point that, you know, um, is kind of taken up by Heidegger when he says, you know, understanding comes before interpretation. Right. It's the same kind of point. It's the point that is taken up by, by Gadamer when he says, you know, you need horizon. completeness. The horizon. Well, you need, you need a notion of completeness mm -hmm. of interpretation before you have, you know, the fusion of horizons okay. and so on and so forth. So from one point of view, what you're describing is actually the hermeneutic interpretation, the hermeneutic situation itself. And, you know, the very possibility of meaning is the fact that you accept certain things as unquestioned. E even, you know, from a psychoanalytic perspective, you know, th there will always be um, effects that we have or, or whatever you want to call it that will remain uh, un unquestioned. Yeah. Yeah. So, uh, you know, th what I was trying to say in my, in my comments was, well, okay, like if we accept that, you know, if we accept that and, you know, we put that within a framework of freedom and therefore put it within a political framework, then what's the political project, you yeah, know? Yeah, I mean, one way of thinking about that, right, is if, is if I, if I'm doing I Ching divination, right, and I gather the arrows, right, I start with that particular gathering, right, and I don't question it once I've done the gathering, right, and then I consult the oracle based on the numbers that come up and, and then the interpretation begins, right, and... In a way, what's weird about markets as divination tools is that it's upside down. It's that there's this, it's as if there are these bidders and askers of various prices in a various market, and the end result is this unquestionable quasi-material fact, right, that, that that doesn't get further interpreted. You see, it, it's like a, it's like a, it's like an it's like an upside down divination tool and I'm, and I'm so so my alternative is not like some world where there are no constraints on how we read right but I, but but what you notice right but what you notice in I think is the structure at least generally speaking in the ethnography of those constraints as being starting points rather than the final word or the end of the day 
which is what I think they somehow become in under the neoliberal way of thinking about markets. Well, so long as the numbers don't affect you, sure, you don't interpret them. But then, you know, when, you know, a, a, there is a crash and you lose your savings, and, and me returning to the Greek example here, then yeah. you do interpret them. You, 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 you do. Know? You do. Okay, so, so this is where I can refine my point, right? But at that point, there's, an, there's an, a series of injunctions that come in. And this is, this is why neoliberalism is a very intensely intellectual project with a lot of different, you know, irons in the fire, like in, in various levels of, you know, media outlets and think tanks and, and even academic positions and so on, right? Because that's precisely where they, they exert their machinery in order to prevent rogue or recalcitrant interpretations from ever gaining traction, right? And, and part, of the, part of what I'm describing is exactly how that war is waged at various levels of the media, at various intellectual levels of how, how a, you know, a disgruntled someone, I mean, Hayek is very explicit about this. How do we train someone who is disgruntled about what happened in a market to learn that you you just need to adapt and you need to recondition yourself and, and get back in the in the game, you know, and this is this is how things and, and that's actually the precisely the level at which this machinery takes hold. Is it is is the need to undermine those, you know, those protests basically that can emerge when things go bad. So that's today's episode. Uh, please, if you are giving a lecture and you think it might be something that would be a good fit for this podcast, feel free to record it. Um, contact me first and we'll talk about it. Uh, but I'm always open to supporting getting those ideas out. Coming up next week, I will be bringing you my conversation with Michael O'Rourke, whose recent uh, chapbook uh, came out with Punctum's uh, Dead Letters series. Uh, the title of that book is Queer Insists for Jose Esteban Munoz, and it was listed as number eight on criticaltheory.org's Books of the Year for 2014. So I hope that will help you get through your Christmas with your family where talking about things like queerness and things like divination is probably not the most welcome experience, though perhaps some of you are more lucky than I am. It's been a challenge, put it that way. The stories, you know, they're not unfortunately interesting enough to tell. But it's very strange to be back in the American heartland and to be surrounded by dead factories and people whose interests you would think would align them with some sort of radical politics or at least looking for the exit. I don't know, maybe it's only me. Maybe I'm just too grumpy for the holidays or maybe I just don't know how to swallow my pride when I'm around this part of my life. Certainly when I come home for the holidays, it doesn't feel like home at all. And I know not everyone feels that kind of homelessness, but for those of you who do, I hope that you don't feel yourself feeling too alone over the next week. And I hope that you remember your name is your name. <laughs>